Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. During the summer when the weather gets hot, I can only imagine how much time you plan to spend outside with friends or alone on your couch with that AC blasting. AT&T 5G and home internet keeps you connected so you can enjoy all the summertime vibes. Whether you're sharing pics from a rooftop, video calling your friends from an outdoor concert, or streaming your favorite show episode after episode. So stay connected to your favorite people and your favorite things with AT&T 5G and home internet. AT&T 5G requires compatible plan and device. Coverage not available everywhere. Learn more at att.com slash 5G for you. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. At the conclusion of the War of 1812, a British commander, an Irishman, Edward Nichols, is in charge of an unnamed fort in northern Florida, and he's busy planning for his retreat. The British have lost a second fight to their former colonies, now known as the United States. As one final act of defiance, Nichols leaves the fort fully armed with cannons, muskets, and gunpowder. Then he hands the fort and all of its weaponry over to the black soldiers who fought for him as colonial marines. Irishman Edward Nichols is a veteran hero of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, an ardent abolitionist, a man who opposes the evil of slavery. He knows a well-stocked fort will help the cause of black liberty. The unnamed fort is soon nicknamed Negro Fort. It becomes a sanctuary for runaway slaves safely located on what is once again Spanish land. The fort is on the banks of the Apalachicola River that forms the border between Alabama and Georgia as it runs south to Florida and the Gulf of Mexico. The land boasts old-growth trees, the kind that are draped in Spanish moss, and stand languidly in the humidity. It's good land. Hero of the War of 1812, General Andrew Jackson, a Southern gentleman and a slave owner, immediately seizes upon the threat of Negro Fort. Slaves are escaping to Negro Fort, fleeing from plantations as far away as Virginia and the Carolinas. Andrew Jackson writes to Washington asking for permission to attack the fort. He's urged on by Georgia plantation owners terrified of widespread slave revolts. Jackson doesn't wait for permission to attack the fortress on Spanish land. He sends orders to Brigadier General Edmund P. Gaines to destroy Negro Fort, burn it to the ground. There are 330 people inside Negro Fort when the United States Army goes to war against the free people living inside. 
200 are black soldiers, 30 are Seminoles and Choctaw warriors. The other 100 people are women and children. Fighting starts on July 27, 1816. Naval commanders fire round after round of cannonballs at the fort. Once they gauge the distance and range, a quote, hot shot is ordered to be heated up. Meanwhile, the defenders of the fort attempt to fire back with their cannons. It's an unfamiliar weapon. Their aim isn't true. Their shots aren't nearly as effective. The prepared hotshot is fired by Navy gunboat number 154. Out of all the things it could hit, the Red Hawk cannonball strikes the fort's storehouse of gunpowder. It explodes with a boom that shakes the earth. The fireball momentarily outshines the sun. Negro Fort is destroyed, burned to the ground. 270 people die in the blast. General Gaines records his shock. The explosion was awful, and the scene horrible, beyond description. In an instant, lifeless bodies were stretched upon the plain, buried in sand or rubbish, or suspended from the tops of the surrounding pines. When the Secretary of War, John Quincy Adams, is tasked with defending Andrew Jackson's unprompted act of war, Adams reasons that Jackson's aggression was an act of, quote, self-defense for the young nation. You see, free black people in an armed fortress acting as a beacon for the enslaved, somewhere real to run away to, liberty there on the edge of slave society, a place where native tribes and runaway slaves live in peace. For that to exist is seen as an act of war against the United States of America. Andrew Jackson's order to destroy Negro Fort would become the first battle in a series of struggles known as the Seminole Wars, and it strengthens Andrew Jackson's resolve about free Negroes and the Indian question. I suggest for your consideration the propriety of setting apart an ample district west of the Mississippi to be guaranteed to the Indian tribes as long as they shall occupy it, each tribe having a distinct control over the portion designated for its use. This immigration should be voluntary, for it would be as cruel as unjust to compel the aborigines to abandon the graves of their fathers and seek a home in a distant land. That's newly elected President Andrew Jackson giving his first annual address to Congress on December 8, 1829. That's also how America sold genocide as a concept, as a bright future, a new dream for America's bold steps forward. Six years earlier, James Monroe laid out the framework for Manifest Destiny. Andrew Jackson made it real. His speech was the initial thrust and announcement of his plans for the Indian Removal Act. The law would come into effect the very next year. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 was pitched as the best idea the U.S. could come up with at the time. But there was one man who would prove Andrew Jackson wrong, Chief John Horse. His people were Seminoles, one of the tribes President Jackson wanted to remove. His people fought back. History calls their series of armed struggles the Seminole Wars. Their struggle is also the largest, most successful revolt of formerly enslaved people in the history of America. You see, Chief John Horse was black, a black Seminole to be exact. He was known by many names, John Horse, John Caballo, Gopher John, John Kawaya. His father, Charles Cavallo, was a chief of a band of the Seminole people. Long before the divisive question of slavery was finally settled in the Civil War, there were the Seminole Wars, three of them, and they were the largest sustained revolt of formerly enslaved people and their indigenous allies. 
Out of the Seminole Wars emerged a handful of legendary figures. On the one side, there was Andrew Jackson. On the other, there were the brave figures of resistance. Men such as John Caesar, Abraham, Osceola, Wildcat, and chief among the young generation was John Horse. By the end of his long life, he would come to be called the Moses of the Seminoles. He would fight for and against the U.S. government, successfully winning his freedom and land for his people. He is the most successful freedom fighter you've likely never heard of. Chief John Horse, the Black Liberator. Yeah, this a home, it's been a long road for us. We taking ownership over everything owed to us. Royalty, we surrounded by our heritage. Our fist up, cause we proud to be American. I'm Zaren Burnett, welcome to Black Cowboys, an iHeart original podcast. What's really in the name? Sitting on a Mustang, riding through the plains. Buffalo soldier, the king of the range. We in love with the cowboy way. Chapter 5 Chief John Horse, the Moses of the Black Seminoles. When John Horse is born, Florida is still part of the Spanish Empire. His family lives in the Alachua Savannah that stretches to the west of St. Augustine. The United States is only 36 years old. But the thing is, John Horse is born in a time of war. Over in Europe, Emperor Napoleon is battling against the Spanish, bleeding the nations of treasure and a generation of soldiers. The Spanish focus turns away from the New World. Taking advantage of this moment of Spanish weakness and distraction, on January 15, 1811, the U.S. Congress holds a secret vote. Congress authorizes President James Madison to annex the Spanish Florida territories. But it's contingent on timing. Spain may be distracted, but Madison doesn't want to aggravate the Spanish and trigger an international conflict. The young nation of America is already edging into a war with its former colonial power, Great Britain. The rumors of war soon turn into fact. In June of 1812, the U.S. declares war against Great Britain. It's fittingly called the War of 1812, although it will last for three years. The war against the British and the U.S. campaign to annex Florida bleed together. They become one inseparable fight for the future of America. Or so the American government sees it. There is another international fighting force that will also change the future shape of America. Formerly enslaved African people from the Carolinas and Georgia living alongside the Seminole in Spanish Florida. The persistent fear of slave revolts lives inside the hearts and minds of all Georgian and Carolinian slave owners. The Haitian Revolution occurred just a decade earlier, ending in 1804. The southern plantation owners are still convinced the same can happen in America at any minute. To stoke those fears and uncertainty, Spain offers freedom to any black person who escapes slavery and runs away to Florida, and is willing to fight for Spain. It's a cunning move. It deprives plantations of the labor needed to power the slave economy. Plus, it breeds natural unrest. Governor Mitchell of Georgia identifies this threat, writing that the Spanish governor has proclaimed freedom to every Negro who will join his standard. Indeed, the principal strength of St. Augustine consists of Negroes. 
Starting in 1687, the Spanish first offered freedom and land to any enslaved person who threw off the yoke of their bondage and escaped to La Florida. The move was originally to undermine the English in the Carolina Territory. It serves the same purpose nearly a century and a half later to undermine America's slave society. How much does the Haitian Revolution and this fear of a slave revolt play into Andrew Jackson's rise to power? I think it, it, it played into it a lot. One of the things they did not want to have was they didn't want anybody enslaved to be aware of the existence of free Black people. They, they didn't want them to think that was possible. So Haiti, by becoming a free country, instantly disproved that theory. Florida could not be allowed to exist because that was further disproving the theory because in addition to them giving them freedom, they were free people. They weren't just runaway slaves there. You know, as you know, they had been there since the 1500s. There had been black people over there with the Spanish. They had play, roles in society. They had, had communities. So the Georgia plantation people who are telling their this, this slaves that you're basically animals cannot have something that disproves them that close. And it shows how close escape is. However, slavery still exists in Spanish Florida. Namely, the Seminole Nation keeps black slaves. Unlike plantation slavery, the newly freed black people who live among the Seminole are allowed to live in their own communities, to marry and live as families. They can tend cattle, plant farmland, and live self-determined lives. The black Seminoles, as they'll come to be called, they must give the proceeds of one of their fields as tribute to their owners. The arrangement is much more akin to feudal landlords and serfs. It wasn't freedom exactly, but it was the best deal available to the runaway slaves and other freedmen. And the Seminoles, following the European lead, had continued to call them slaves, but only to bolster their own wealth. Living side by side, the Seminole and the Black Seminoles begin to intermarry and produce children, which only further complicates any traditional American notions of slavery. The indigenous Seminoles were committed to their values of freedom and without hesitation would fight alongside the fugitive slaves. Soon enough, hundreds of enslaved people would steal away for freedom and join the Seminole nation. You could say the first underground railroad ran south to La Florida. Those who wanted to live free and those who wanted to enslave others for profit and power were on a crash course. It was unavoidable. Their fight would take many forms. This is the world John Horse is born into. Raised on Spanish land, among the Seminole Nation, his father a Seminole, his mother an escaped slave. By the law of his tribe, he is not a Seminole, but he's considered instead, quote, the property of his father. And thus, he is a black Seminole. When you were in school, did you learn about the Black Seminoles? Did you learn about the Seminole Wars? Was that mentioned at all in history class? I don't remember it being mentioned at all. I had read about it when we were in Meadville, Pennsylvania. The house we rented was a, had been a nunnery, and they had a huge library. In their library, they had uh, all kinds of books that I had never seen. And they had three books about the Seminole Wars. And that's, that's when I first read about them. It's March of 1818. The hero of the War of 1812, Andrew Jackson, leads two regiments of mounted soldiers into Spanish Florida, and he builds a fort. 
As long as enslaved people have a hope of freedom on the border of America, the Seminole are a direct threat to plantation society. Andrew Jackson aims to snuff out that threat. John Horse is just five or six years old when he and his family cross the Suwannee River chased by a combined force of Jackson's two regiments, militia members, volunteers, and a band of Lower Creek Indians who are loyal to the cause of plantation slavery. By the time Andrew Jackson's men arrive at the banks of the Suwannee River, almost all the Black Seminoles have made it across the river, but many feet are still wet, having barely made it to safety. In May, Andrew Jackson turns his attentions and marches west for Pensacola. Without orders to do so, he crosses deeper into Spanish territory. He goes to war against Spain. His forces overcome a much weaker Spanish detachment, left to guard a garrison. The Spanish fort at Pensacola is easily taken. The Spanish commander surrenders. Andrew Jackson's unauthorized attack nearly starts the very world war that Madison feared. International conflict is only averted when in February of the next year, Spain decides not to retaliate with warfare and violence. Instead, Spain chooses to sell the territory of Florida to the United States. As a reward for his conquest, Andrew Jackson is named the first governor of Florida. It's a role he resents and quickly resigns from. He seeks a higher office. In 1819, John Horse is now seven years old, and without moving, he now lives in America. His family settles near present-day Tampa Bay. It's the same place where, centuries earlier, Esteban the Negro first set foot on what would become American soil. Within a little more than a decade, John Horse will come to be known as a great warrior and one of the bravest war chiefs of the Seminole Nation. Since he fought in the Revolutionary War as a boy, some historians like to describe Andrew Jackson as the last founding father. He's not. It's more accurate to say Andrew Jackson is the end of the Revolutionary Era and that he abandons the founding father's guiding spirit for the country. There are whispers that he will become an American Napoleon when Andrew Jackson is elected. The brash and arrogant military man has a bold vision for the nation. He sets into motion events that will put America on course to become a world power. But first, he must remove the Indians and end the threat to slavery that is the Seminole Nation. To do that, Andrew Jackson will have to go up against John Horse. On February 16, 1835, President Andrew Jackson writes a letter to the Seminoles. My children, I am sorry to have heard that you have been listening to bad counsel. You know me, and you know that I would not deceive nor advise you to do anything that was unjust or injurious. Open your ears and attend to what I shall now say to you. They are the words of a friend and the words of truth. The white people are settling around you. The game has disappeared from your country. Your people are poor and hungry. All this you have perceived for some time. My children, I have never deceived, nor will I ever deceive any of the red people. I tell you that you must go, and that you will go. You will soon be in a state of starvation. You will commit depredations upon the property of our citizens. You will be resisted, punished, and perhaps killed. If, therefore, you had a right to stay where you now are, 
Still, every true friend would advise you to remove. But you have no right to stay. And you must go. If you listen to the voice of friendship and truth, you will go quietly and voluntarily. But should you listen to the bad birds that are always flying about you and refuse to move, I have then directed the commanding officer to remove you by force. This will be done. I pray the Great Spirit, therefore, to incline you to do what is right. Your friend, Andrew Jackson. The president's open threat is easy to translate. President Jackson's no more a friend than a coiled snake is. And the bad birds are likely the black freedmen. Negotiations are tense. They stretch out over months. At one point, Seminole Chief Osceola reportedly draws a knife and stabs it through the proposed treaty, burying his knife deep into the table and says, The only treaty I will ever execute will be this! Other chiefs from the Seminole Nation aren't so militant. They eventually sign a treaty. The next year, on January 8, 1836, the U.S. orders the Seminole Nation to evacuate Florida. Any tribe member who refuses the order will be hunted down like wild animals and likely shot. Thus begins the Second Seminole War. There was a moment there in history when Florida ostensibly could have become a majority native and black state. possibly even a republic or nation on the edge of America. Can you imagine if Florida had been developed as a majority native and black state? Yeah, I sure can. And I, I, th- I think it would have been uh, absorbed into this country as a nat- as a native and black state, just like New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> a native and black city state, I got you. That's right. <laughs> there were communities uh, over a thousand people. In North Florida, where Amelia Island is now in St. Augustine, there were many villages and settlements along the shoreline and then along the the Georgia border. They were stationary. They weren't moving around like nomads. These were were developed communities with hierarchies and defense contingents. Uncle Herbert went to Florida every year with two buses of migrant workers that he would pick up there and then follow the, the season up north and then back south every year. So to us, Florida was just where he started his work every year. And nobody ever went to Florida. The first time I went to Florida, uh, Zarin was two years old. We always looked at Florida as two different states. Everything above Orlando is South Georgia. Everything below Orlando is Florida. And the people were different. The panhandle around to Ocala is agricultural, horse farms, and all that. And then as you get to the shore, you have the resorts. That's a different population of people. But we didn't like any of it because it was all segregated. The year is 1837. The Second Seminole War is raging. After he hears word his father has been captured, the young Seminole war chief Wildcat rides to the old Spanish fortress at St. Augustine to speak with the U.S. Army garrisoned there. At his side is his friend, the equally young 25-year-old black Seminole war chief John Horse. The men on horseback approach under a white flag of truce. Wildcat is wary of the American military. He refuses to ride into the fortress. Instead, he sends John Horse in to parley with the U.S. Army commander, Brigadier General Hernandez. John Horse is often asked to speak on behalf of the Seminole Nation as an interpreter. John Horse conveys Wildcat's message. 
On October 21st, General Hernandez, General Jessup, and his officers sit down to talk Indian removal with a delegation of chiefs from the Seminole Nation, led by Osceola. John Horse is there, representing the Black Seminoles and acting as an interpreter for the Seminole chiefs. The treaty talks begin pleasantly enough. Right up until General Hernandez asks the Seminole leaders why the Seminoles have not turned over the Black Seminoles to the army as fugitive slaves. This was not part of the agreement, not as far as Wildcat is concerned. Before the Seminole leadership can object to the question, more than 200 armed soldiers and Florida militia volunteers surround the Seminole leadership. Weapons are drawn. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. Inside or outside the fortress, the result is the same. The U.S. betrays the flag of truce. The army officers arrest the Seminole leadership. Wildcat, known as the Napoleon of the Seminoles, has rarely ever been captured. To have him in chains along with the revered Chief Osceola and the Black Seminole leader John Horse, along with 20 other chiefs and warriors, it's deemed a great day for the U.S. Army in Florida. The captured men are herded together into Castillo de San Marcos, the former Spanish fortress in St. Augustine. 
The cell where the men are kept is 18 feet by 33 feet. A single shaft of light illuminates the prison cell. A delegation from the Cherokee Nation in Georgia is brought in to convince the Seminole of the futility of their fight to stay in Florida. The tribesmen speak, and Osceola expresses to them that he is tired of war. His statement may be true, or it may be a way to buy the Seminole time. You see, they have an escape plan underway. A few weeks later, on November 29, 1837, the captured Seminole leaders attempt to break out of the former Spanish fortress. It's a seemingly impossible task. There's just the one window, 15 feet high up the wall. Inside of the window are two iron bars. Somehow, the captured Seminoles work one of the bars loose. The captives have been given canvas sacks to sleep on. They cut up the sacks and fashion them into ropes. Now, imagine a warrior, Wildcat, climbing up the fortress wall, fingers stuck into whatever grooves or ledges exist. He stands on the handle of a knife wedged into the wall. He manages to climb up to the window. Between his teeth is the rope made from the sacks. He ties it to the remaining iron bar in the window. The opening is now about eight inches wide, roughly the size of a large man's hand. The fortress exterior wall is at least a 20-foot drop. There's a patch of mud and soft grass, though, for them to land in. One by one, the captured Seminoles and Black Seminoles climb up the rope, squeeze through the window, and drop down to freedom. They're naked, scratched up, and bleeding from forcing their bodies through an eight-inch hole. But they're free. Twenty captives escape the fortress prison, led by John Horse and Wildcat. Chief Osceola has grown ill in prison. He stays behind in the cell, unable to make the escape. A future U.S. president, Zachary Taylor, is a colonel at the time. He's soon appointed the new commander of forces in the Florida campaign. He takes over for an injured General Jessup. Zachary Taylor gets right to work. He plans to offer his combatants one last chance to give up and go peacefully, or he will take the fight to the Indians. He sends messengers urging all Seminoles to return to the fortress at St. Augustine for removal to Indian territory. When the Seminoles and Black Seminoles, led by John Horse and Wildcat, refuse to trust the U.S. Army once again, Colonel Zachary Taylor prepares for all-out war. On December 20th, he marches at the head of an army of a thousand men. He will force the Seminole to leave Florida at gunpoint. Colonel Zachary Taylor's army is lured into an ambush by the United Seminole and Black Seminole warriors, who've selected a battleground of their picking. Naturally, it's a swamp, which favors their guerrilla tactics. The Seminole warriors lie in wait in the tall, swaying saw grass. They don't waste bullets on lowly soldiers or militia volunteers. Once Taylor's troops draw within range of the Seminole rifles, the sharpshooter warriors aim exclusively at the officers. Their surprise attack is sprung. A colonel is shot dead. His son, a sergeant major, falls wounded. A captain and two lieutenants are shot down. Three other officers are hit. Then the Seminole melt away, back into the swamp. They take up new positions, and they hold them. They draw Taylor's men further into the mire of swamp. They repeat their tactic, once again firing at the officers. After a few hours in the face of overwhelming exchanges of gunfire, the Seminole warriors retreat fully into the swamps. Colonel Zachary Taylor considers his offensive a victory. 
But the ratio of killed and wounded tells a different story. For every one Seminole warrior, Indian or black, killed or wounded, Taylor has lost nearly seven of his soldiers. The Second Seminole War will last for another four years. By early 1838, a few months after Wildcat and John Horse escaped from the Spanish Fortress Prison, the U.S. is eager to find a cheap exit from the nation's spiraling Second Seminole War. The U.S. decides the best way to do that is to cut their losses. Let the black Seminoles like John Horse and his family become free. Let them migrate with the Seminole Nation to Indian Territory. Clear them all out at once. General Jessup, in charge of the Florida military campaign, issues an order, one that will be cited many times in the future. He says that all the black tribespeople who were the property of the Seminole Indians in Florida, who separated themselves from the Indians and delivered themselves up to the commanding officer of the troops, should be free. They should be sent to the West as part of the Seminole Nation and be settled in a separate village under the protection of the United States. This, ultimately, is a divide-and-conquer strategy. It relies on the fact that the Black Seminoles and the Seminoles have different definitions of victory in their war against the United States. One of the Black Seminole leaders, a man named Abraham, writes to General Jessup after the issue of his field order. We will go with the Indians to our new home and wish to know how we are to be protected and who is to have the care of us on the road. We do not live for ourselves only, but for our wives and children, who are as dear to us as those of any other men. All the black people are contented, I hope. P.S. John Cavallo is in and contented. Glad to hear of the peace. John Horse, a.k.a. John Cavallo, indeed recognizes that his people will get no better offer from the United States of America than freedom and land in the Indian Territory. He agrees to lead his people out of Florida. A year after getting settled in Indian Territory, John Horse requests to return to Florida to gather up his family who have yet to migrate. It works out that the U.S. government has a need for his talents. John Horse is allowed to return to Florida as an interpreter and a guide for the U.S. Army. General Walker K. Armistead requests John Horse convince his old friend and comrade Wildcat to set down his weapons, cease fighting, and safely migrate to Indian Territory. Wildcat isn't so willing to leave the land that so many of his tribesmen have died for. On March 5, 1841, Wildcat, known in his native tongue as Kuwakuchi, rides into camp with his loyal band of warriors by his side. In order to impress the U.S. Army commanders, that he understands the ways of the white men, Wildcat shows up in his finest threads. He and his warriors wear purloined Shakespearean costumes to the meeting. Having recently attacked a theatrical troupe near St. Augustine and appropriated their wardrobe, the Indian delegation was enabled to appear en grand tenue. According to military historian Theophilus Roddenbaugh, they were dressed in stolen Shakespearean costumes. Koakuchi had donned the nodding plumes of the Prince of Denmark. At his elbow appeared, with an evident sense of the fitness of things, Horatio. And close behind came another proud monarch of the forest, wrapped in King Richard's robes, which were not unbecoming the wearer, and would have been imposing, had not a keen sense of the ludicrous strongly tempted some of the spectators to unseemly levity, which was repressed with an effort, and in the interest of diplomacy. 
And so, dressed as Hamlet, Seminole War Chief Wildcat negotiates for peace with the U.S. Army. To be or not to be, that truly is Wildcat's existential question. In his talks with the U.S. military, Wildcat promises that he will stop fighting, that he will round up his people. Once together, they will accept removal to the Indian Territory. But then, Wildcat takes his time leaving Florida. He keeps promising he'll gather up more people. He asks for rations and for whiskey. When he comes back weeks later empty-handed, the U.S. Army officers grow suspicious that Wildcat is up to his old tricks, stalling, stocking up supplies, and planning to escape again into the Florida swamps. A young William Tecumseh Sherman is ordered to find and arrest Wildcat. True to his later shows of efficiency when he burns a wide path through Georgia during the Civil War, Sherman handles his business. He finds Wildcat. He captures him along with his brother, his uncle, 13 warriors, and three black Seminoles. Wildcat is manacled in irons, loaded on a wagon, and then shipped to New Orleans, where he is to be transferred to a riverboat and headed up north to Indian Territory. But... A new military authority, Colonel W.J. Worth, takes over the Florida campaign. He has a progressive plan to clear all the natives out of Florida. He believes he can convince the holdouts to go and that he can get Wildcat to do it for him. In fact, he firmly believes he needs the Seminole leader to help him if he has any hope of ending the long and costly war. When Colonel Worth hears an army report that Wildcat has been captured, he's elated. But then he hears that Wildcat is currently en route from Tampa Bay to New Orleans. This ruins Colonel Worth's plans to leverage the charismatic leader to work for him. He orders Wildcat to be returned to Florida at once. On the 4th of July, Colonel W.J. Worth meets Wildcat's transport ship in Tampa Bay. With him, he brings John Horse as his interpreter. John Horse is reunited aboard ship with his old war comrade, Wildcat. The now freed black man working as a guide and interpreter for the U.S. Army is in an odd position. What looks to be betrayal, Wildcat seemingly understands. He knows what's at stake for his old friend and his people. When Colonel Worth speaks first, John Horse translates his words into Seminole for Wildcat. And thus, he ends up speaking aloud both sides of one of the most moving exchanges in American history. Gokoji, I take you by the hand as a warrior, a brave man. You have fought long and with a true and strong heart for your country. I take your hand with feelings of pride. You love your country as we do. It is sacred to you. The ashes of your kindred are dear to you and to the Seminoles. These feelings have caused much bloodshed, distress, and horrid murders. It is time now the Indian felt the power and the strength of the white man. Like the oak, you may bear up many years against strong winds, but the time has come when it will fall. The time has arrived, Kukokuchi. I'm your friend. So is your great father in Washington. What I say to you is true. My word is for the happiness of the red man. After the military officer is done speaking, John Horse turns his attention to his old friend. John Horse faithfully translates Wildcat's response. I was once a boy, 
then I saw the white man afar off. I hunted in these woods, first with a bow and arrow, then with a rifle. I saw the white man and was told he was my enemy. I could not shoot him as I would a wolf or a bear. Yet like them, he came upon me. Horses, cattle, and fields, he took them from me. He said he was my friend. He abused our women and children and told us to go from the land. Still, he gave me his hand in friendship. We took it. Whilst taking, he had a snake in the other. His tongue was forked. He lied and stung us. I asked, but for a small piece of these lands, enough to plant and to live upon. Far south, a spot where I could lay the ashes of my kindred. This was not granted to me. I was put in prison. I escaped. I have again been taken. You have brought me back. I am here. I feel the irons in my heart. In the moment shortly after John Horse finishes translating Wildcat's words, a nearby government vessel, a Navy ship, sitting at anchor in the harbor, fires off its guns. It's to celebrate freedom and independence. It's a salute for the 4th of July. It's quite a moment in American history. Pop, the fact that this occurs on the 4th of July, and here they are, free men arguing for their independence, it seems like this irony is just lost on the Americans. The two of them, those two guys were focused on being free, on taking their people to freedom. So the decision they were always making was never a short-term, short-track decision. It was always, how is this going to serve us in our pursuit of a place to live where we can be left alone, where we can be free? And you can see exactly why he made the decision he made and why Wildcat would understand it. I had mixed feelings about the position they were taking because I admired the fact that they weren't going to go. You know, that they were going to keep their land in South Florida. But of course, that wasn't prudent. <laughs> that couldn't work. How did you feel about it? Well, it's, it's a complicated moment because John Horse has decided to basically do the math and say to himself, it's safer and more likely for me and my family to do well in the future if we align ourselves with the U.S. government. And the best position for me to become then is an interpreter and a guide. And then his after making that choice, a difficult choice after fighting against the U.S. Army, when he's comes back to meet Wildcat, his former comrade, there has to be that moment of betrayal. For the next year, John Horse and Wildcat work for the U.S. Army, convincing all remaining natives in Florida to peacefully relocate to Indian Territory. As a reward for his service on February 22, 1842, Worth, now General Worth, reconfirms John Horse's prior agreements with Generals Jessup and Zachary Taylor that John Horse is a free man. By that following summer, John Horse is now ready to travel back to Indian Territory. He's free, and he has land promised to him, located in the Seminole Nation. On July 14, 1842, John Horse and his family board a ship headed west out of Tampa Bay. One month later, on August 14, 1842, the Second Seminole War is declared officially over. General Jessup once correctly called the Second Seminole War what it had turned out to be. He had warned this is, quote, a Negro war, not an Indian war. Accepting the truth of his statement is key to their victory. Once the U.S. offers freedom and land to the black Seminoles, the war is effectively over. Their native allies can't maintain the war without John Horse and the other black Seminoles. During the summer of 1842, John Horace makes it to New Orleans with his wife Susan and their child. 
Later, they all chug along on a steamboat as it charges slowly up the Mississippi River and on up to the Arkansas River. Low water in the Arkansas River forces John Horace and his family to depart the riverboat and continue overland. Finally, on September 6, 1842, the family reaches the end of the line, Fort Smith, the edge of Indian territory. That same land where Bass Reeves would one day become the law and Cherokee Bill its most famous outlaw. At the moment, that's all in the future. In 1842, the Indian territory is still a new idea for the nation. And it's sparsely populated, which means it doesn't take long for John Horace to find Wildcat and other bands of Seminoles. There are roughly 1,100 Seminole people camping outside of Fort Gibson at the edge of the Cherokee Nation. The Cherokee are more welcoming to the Seminole than their own people are, the Creek. Now, living in Indian Territory, the Seminoles are once again considered a restored part of the Creek Nation. There's one big problem with that. It's 1842. The Creek Nation operates as a plantation society. The tribe looks at the Black Seminoles as a new slave population for them to claim and to exploit. To make sure he can't be re-enslaved, John Horse asks the Seminole Nation to confirm that he is free according to the tribal laws. In July of 1843, the Seminole Council affirms his father Charles Caballo's will, thus freeing John Horse under Seminole law. He is now officially free in the eyes of the United States and the Seminole Nation. But this only protects John Horse. It doesn't protect all the other black Seminoles. Wildcat understands this threat to the Black Seminoles who followed John Horse to Indian Territory. The Black Seminoles must rely on the Cherokee for protection from their own Creek kin. Wildcat doesn't like living under the Creek either. He wants land that's solely for the Seminoles, where his tribe and the Black Seminoles can live side by side again and in peace. When the Seminole chiefs meet in council, Wildcat wins them over to his new plan. The chiefs decide to send a delegation to Washington to demand federal land of their own. An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland, a man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM. 
Let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. John Horse is around 32 years old in May of 1844 when he and Wildcat step onto the streets of Washington, D.C. They can't go directly to the White House to visit their great father in Washington. Instead, John Horse and Wildcat meet with a man they trust and respect, General Jessup. Their old military enemy is also the same man who'd first offered freedom and land to John Horse if he convinced the Black Seminoles to lay down their arms and stop fighting. When he hears of the mistreatment of the Black Seminoles in Indian territory, he's disappointed to learn that the United States hasn't kept its end of their bargain. He invites John Horse and Wildcat to his home for dinner. The three men discuss the dire situation in Indian territory and what can be done. On January 4, 1845, the Seminole Nation is finally granted land of their own. However, the land they're awarded is inside the Creek Nation, and thus the Seminoles are still bound under Creek law. This means slave coats and plantation society. This is unacceptable to John Horse. He plans to return to Washington and argue for a true Seminole nation, one where he and Wildcat's people can live side by side and in peace. He travels east to argue for his people. Once he reaches Washington, John Horse contacts his friend and advocate General Jessup. His old foe turned friend takes him to speak with President James K. Polk. The two leaders talk candidly about the future of the Seminole nation. John Horse presents a statement about the 18 black Seminoles who've been captured and sold by slave catchers. Three generations of one family, a grandmother, mother, and grandchild, he notes, were all sold for the price of five barrels of whiskey. John Horse reports that President Polk assures him that the black Seminoles will be treated the same as the other Seminoles. On April 8, 1846, General Jessup writes to Fort Gibson, updating the military on the status of John Horse's diplomacy mission in Washington. John Cowagy needs to return to his family, leaving the business of himself and his people in my hands. The case of the Seminole Negroes is now before the president. To ensure safe passage home for his friend, General Jessup writes up a pass for John Horace to carry while he travels, since he'll have to cross through southern states before he gets home. Such was travel for a black statesman in 1846. John Horace does make it home safely. But things, however, don't go as smoothly as promised. While he's in Washington, speaking with the president, John Horse loses two family members to a slave catcher. Two of his sister's children are grabbed, never to be seen again. John Horse begins to regret the move to Indian Territory. He pleads with the U.S. government that his people be allowed to emigrate back to Florida or be sent anywhere else. A man named Lieutenant Loomis later recommends Africa. Liberia is mentioned as an option. 
Although he is a black Seminole who has only ever lived in native communities, John Horace accepts the offer of being shipped to Africa. That is, if Lieutenant Loomis, working as an official of the U.S. government, can arrange it. He cannot. In the spring of 1848, John Horace gets further disturbed by the result of a local court case. A slave-catching ring run by a Cherokee woman is busted. The judge in the case sides with the slave catchers. After the judge's ruling, John Horace writes to his friend, General Jessup. The other day, three of our people were stolen, and more than a month has passed and have not yet been recovered. One of the principals in this theft has been placed before the law, and from some cause or the other, she has been let go. Some say there is no law against stealing Negroes. Things only grew worse in 1848. That's when U.S. Attorney General John Mason determines that black Seminoles are Negroes, and Negroes in America in 1848 aren't free. They are fit to be slaves. Case closed. Hunting season, open. The great father in Washington has once again betrayed his word. John Horse knows he can't keep fighting for freedom inside of America. It's time to fight his way out of America. His old friend Wildcat agrees. America is no place for a free man to find a good life. They plan to ride south for Mexico with hundreds of other Seminoles. In 1829, Mexico outlawed slavery. That was thanks to their black and indigenous president, Vicente Guerrero. Just as the black Seminoles had once escaped south to Spanish Florida to be free, they now must escape south to Mexico for the same reason. In July, after months of migrating their hundreds of people south, just before they can make it to the border, while they're still in Texas, they cross paths with a U.S. Army wagon train. At the command is an old foe from the Second Seminole War, Major John T. Sprague. When John Horse learns of this, he and Wildcat ride over to speak with their old enemy, to talk about the good old days back in Florida. Their meeting is friendly. The men open a bottle of whiskey and don't ever put the cap back on. They get good and drunk. As the old stories get shared, all is convivial and friendly, or so it seems. The next morning, a Mexican captive held by the U.S. Army warns John Horace and Wildcat that while they were getting drunk with the Major, he heard other soldiers laughing about how there is a regiment coming to grab the Seminole blacks and enslave them, and then they also plan to detain the natives and take them back to the Creek Nation. John Horace and Wildcat don't stick around to confront the Major about his betrayal. Too many people are counting on them. Together, the Seminole and the Black Seminole leader ride hard for the Mexican border. To throw off the army chasing them down, they split up into two groups. They travel like this for two days. Every day, they fear that they will be caught. Each night when they camp, they pray they aren't ambushed in their sleep. Finally, at a place called Eagle Pass, Texas, they spy the Rio Grande River, that wet and shifting border between Mexico and the United States. At dark, the Seminoles and Black Seminoles ford the river and attempt to cross to safety on the other side. And so, on July 12, 1850, roughly 300 people ferry themselves across the Rio Grande. They use homemade rafts that they construct there at the river's edge. They float their way to freedom. Just at daybreak, as the last raft was crossing, the water wasn't dry on the feet of their horses. They saw the troop on the opposite bank of the river. The soldiers standing on the U.S. side of the river border shouted at their fleeing prey. As well, the U.S. soldiers waved red handkerchiefs and called them to come back. Yeah, we'll come back all right, the warriors shouted in reply, but we'll come back to fight. 
Once they're safely in Mexico, the Seminoles and the Black Seminoles are welcomed with open arms. They eat well for the first time in a long time. They've survived America. They are finally free, and they have land of their own. John Horse has this nickname. He's known as the Black Moses of the Seminoles. What do you think of that as a nickname for him? Do you think it fits? I, I think it's entirely appropriate. He was as single-mindedly focused on freedom as anybody I've ever seen. And, and he didn't let anything distract him from his, from his purpose. And he wasn't selfish about it. He was trying to get his, you know, him and all the people around him free. And he was relentless in his pursuit of it. There's a conversation that we haven't had yet and likely uh, isn't typically brought up, but just basically uh, why John Horse can't be talked about in American public education. You don't ever hear about these stories because the shame would be on America. This whole thing is fucked up. Let's, let's, let's stop where we are right now and acknowledge that the history we've been telling ourselves is not the true history of us. The true history is even better. The real history of America is so much better. If people knew about John Horse, if black kids were raised up knowing about him, they would feel better about themselves. If white kids were raised up hearing about him, they would feel better about black people. <laughs> you know, every, it's like because you you become aware more of what's happening when you hear the truth, and as opposed to what somebody has just made up. And it's always, I, I think, I don't think there's any way around the truth if you're trying to correct something. You have to address the truth of the matter and then come up with a strategy for making that hold. John Horse did it, and he made it last. John Horse lives out the rest of his days mostly down in Mexico. Both he and Wildcat dare to continue to crisscross the Texas-Mexico border for commerce and for a good time. Slave catchers on the Texas side patrol the borderlands. Worse are the slave raiders who cross the border to snatch people from Mexican soil and sell them into slavery in America. Despite living in a foreign country, the Black Seminoles can never feel safe and truly free until the Civil War is fought and slavery dies away as an institution. John Horse's most faithful friend and ally, Wildcat, dies from a smallpox epidemic, one that sweeps through their two communities. As we all now know, an epidemic is a wicked shock and can claim lives with a horrifying quickness. John Horse learns this same lesson. Yet, he survives the epidemic. He spends his declining years ensuring that his people keep the land that he and Wildcat fought so tirelessly to win. Finally, in 1881, John Horse takes his last ride. He does it in service of his people. John Horse saddles up his horse, which for his own reasons he's named American. He's a surprising patriot, but perhaps he feels he's earned the right to claim that name. And so he rides south. He heads off to Mexico City. He plans to meet with the president. Only he's never to be seen again. He passes away somewhere on that last trail. John Horace fought for decades for his freedom. Countless times in his life, he lost and regained it over and over again. But through his tenacity and his unwillingness to give in or give up, he fought and won freedom and land for him and his people. Today, if you travel to the community at Nacimiento in Mexico, you can find the descendants of the Black Seminole people who fled slavery in America. They're still living there, speaking Spanish, maintaining the customs of the Seminole Nation, as well as their Black ancestors of the Gullah Geechee people of the Carolinas. John Horse was born into the largest successful revolt of enslaved people in American history. 
He partnered with Wildcat to outlast the agendas of the U.S. military and to win a nation for their peoples, one family living in two homes. John Horse was known to say, every child is my child. All children and old people are my own children and my own parents. He said those words, but more importantly, he lived those words, was willing to die for those words, for his people. He was the Moses of the Black Seminoles. Thanks for listening. Black Cowboys is written by me, Zaren Burnett. Produced and edited by Ryan Murdoch and Michelle Lands. Our theme song is written and performed by Demeanor. Sound design and music by Jeremy Thal. Additional music by Alvin Youngblood Hart, Greg Chudzik, and Nathan Kosey. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson, Marissa Brown, Jocelyn Sears, and Aaron Blakemore. Performances by Jay Charlesworth, Frank Nemec, and Ryan Murdoch. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikader. Special thanks, as always, to my pop. Yeah, this a home, it's been a long road for us. We taking ownership over everything owed to us. Royalty, we surrounded by our heritage. Our fist up, cause we proud to be American. What's really in the name? Sitting on a Mustang, riding through the plains. Buffalo soldier, the king of the range. We in love with the cowboy way. An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian-trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. When we come together, it's magic. And for 30 years, we've celebrated that. Because our ideas, our art, our flavor, our community, our impact, there's nothing like it. Here, in this place, this is where we fall more in love with everything that makes us, us. This is the place where we love us. Celebrate 30 years of loving us at Essence Festival. Get your tickets at EssenceFestival.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.